0: So I have always had crazy vivid dreams, like even as a kid I had insane, you know, wake my mother up in the middle of the night, check for people under the bed dreams. And I had this crazy dream out of the blue where there was this girl in Wendy blue in a stone turret somewhere in England with no doors, but there were windows and she was hooked up to all this medical equipment and these boys in Peter Pan Green were flying in and out of the windows and they were saying things like, well, who will save us now? Like who will sacrifice for us when she dies? Who can we get to replace her? And I woke up and I was like, oh, where did that come from?
1: Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. for New York Times bestselling authors one Rockstar Librarian and Endless Stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us.
2: And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the newest episode of the Friends and Fiction Writers Block podcast. Today, we are approaching storytelling from a different perspective, which is one of the things we love about doing this podcast. It's quite a feat to successfully take a well-known tale and offer a fresh new look. And our guest today has certainly done that. Today, we are talking with Liz Michelski about Darling Girl, a modern reimagining of Peter Pan. I am Ron Block.
1: And I am Patty Callahan Henry. Liz writes fairy tales for grown-ups because grown-ups need fairy tales too. And we're going to dig into that, but she is a former reporter and an editor. And as a college student, she did something I am immensely envious of. She spent a semester with a member of English parliament, an experience that made her fall in love with London, which you can tell in this book. She is a contributor to Writer Unboxed, an author in progress. And her first novel, Evenfall, came out in 2011 and is also a lovely ode to fairy tales. She lives in Massachusetts with her family, a hive of bees, two chickens, and the world's best dog, which I'm going to argue with, but (laughs) not here. So welcome, Liz.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. What kind of best dog is your dog? So he is a boxer. We think Ridgeback Cross. And when we got him at five months, he had had five homes. He had walked on the dining room table of his previous homes. He had backed people into corners for jelly donuts and would not stop until they gave them to him. So we have done a lot of training and he is, he's 12. He still thinks he's five. He's 80 pounds of muscle. And he adores my kids. So so I will fight you for the title.
2: Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll he sounds referee. great.
0: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and he lets me dress him up all the time. I have pictures of him as Tinkerbell and as Captain him.
1: Hook. So he's a lot of fun. I've seen pictures on your Instagram. It's great.
2: Oh, I'm going to go back and look at those. It's going to be good. Yep. Okay, let's go. So, beyond being a clever and dark reimagining of Peter Pan, told from the perspective of the Darling Woman, as well as a fascinating story of sibling and parental love, Liz, can you quickly tell our listeners what it's about, and then the more fascinating part, what is it really about?
0: So, when I wrote my first couple of drafts, after I had something that I was comfortable with, I asked a friend of mine to read it for me. And she said she would. And she took it and brought it back a couple of weeks later. And when she had taken it, she had said, you know, what's it about? And I said, it's a story about Peter Pan. And she brought it back to me and she looked at me and she said, this is not about Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. And I said yes, it is. And she said, take it home, figure out what it's about and get back to me. And I said, what you're supposed to say to everybody who reads your work. Thank you so much. And then I went home and said really nasty things about her under my breath and regretted asking her and threw it under my desk and didn't look at it for two weeks. And then I went back and I pulled it out and I read it and I was like, oh, damn. And damn was not the word I used. Um, She's right. She is absolutely right. This is not about Peter Pan. It's about my oldest getting ready to go off for college. And it's about the grief that you feel when your children are growing up and you've done your job and you've done the right thing and you have to let them go. And just how hard that is to let them go in a world where you you know you you've spent eighteen or nineteen years trying to protect them and you can't protect them from everything. And right. they're, they're they're flying away and you're left behind waving at the window.
2: So that's what it's really about. I love wow. it. yeah. That's so cool. I have chill bumps.
1: And I just always, that's why we love that question because there is the plot of what a book's about and then there's the, the live wire kind of thrumming underneath it. And I love that.
0: And so often I feel That for me, at least as a writer, I think I'm writing about one thing. Like I have, you know, I have an index card that I usually put together and I stick it over my desk when I start a new story. And by the end of the story, it's a completely different sentence or two sentences on that index card. And so much of what you're doing or what I'm doing is working out stuff in my subconscious that I'm not even aware of.
1: A hundred percent. Yes. And that's the best writing, I think, when we allow that card to change when we allow what we wrote on that index card as our premise or our cornerstone, when we give it enough wiggle room to let it become what it wants to become yeah. instead yeah. Of, of putting it in concrete. Right. So I love that.
2: I also think it's really brave to do that, to allow that mm-hmm. your your mind to do that to you. And that's because it's, if it's written down, sometimes you just want to read what's there instead of thinking about it and going in another direction, awesome.
1: So, Liz, what made you want to dive into the Peter Pan story in the first place? Can you pinpoint the moment you said, I think it's really hard sometimes to pinpoint it, and sometimes there is a moment where you say, I want to explore this. I've heard you
0: say you're afraid of flying, so why Peter Pan? So, I have always had crazy, vivid dreams. Like, even as a kid, I had insane, you know, wake my mother up in the middle of the night, check for people under the bed dreams. And I had this crazy dream out of the blue where there was this girl in Wendy Blue in a stone turret somewhere in England with no doors, but there were windows. And she was hooked up to all this medical equipment. And these boys in Peter Pan Green were flying in and out of the windows. And they were saying things like, well, who will save us now? Like, who will sacrifice for us when she dies? Who can we get to replace her? And I woke up and I was like, oh, where did that come from? Because I hadn't read Peter Pan in years. And so I immediately read the original Peter Pan, which I love. It's it's such a beautiful book. And then I just started really exploring everything about J.M. Barry that I could find. And I think that that kind of coupled with what was going on in the world? The Me Too movement was really strong at the time and getting a lot of publicity. Just kind of all swirled together in, in my head and, and came out the other end as "Darling Girl." The idea
1: that a dream started it is so amazing. I I have crazy, crazy dreams. Maybe writers do, and I often write them down and try and because I feel like they're messages from our subconscious or unconscious that they're a bit of a bridge between the waking world and the sleeping world. But I've never had one turn, as far as I can tell, I've never had one really turn into the plot of a book. So that is really fascinating.
0: Yeah. You know, and I think like a lot of writers that I know, I try and feed my brain a really rich and varied diet and then just get out of the way. And even if it doesn't come out as a plot, it, it comes out as a visual and I think that that tends to be how I write. I have a visual and I, and I can't, you know, I can't paint, I can't do photography or anything like that well, but my books are always, the beginning of them is always very visual to me. Love
1: that. I've also heard you say that when you become, back to the the gist of this, when you realize what the book was really about, that when you become a parent, you go from being the main character to the sidekick. And ugh, so true. You're no longer the focus of the world. How did that work its way into this novel? Because it's it's obvious how devoted the main
0: character is. When I read Peter Pan, I really read it with an eye, you know, after after I devoured the story again and I went back and kind of looked at it in terms of the characters more critically, I read it with an eye to what the darling women were doing. Because there's at the end of the book, Barry writes that Wendy's, Wendy grows too old, so Jane goes to Neverland. And then Jane's daughter, who in the book is Margaret, goes to Neverland, and so on and so on. And I thought there's this whole generation of women who are standing at the window, having had their adventures, whatever those adventures may have been, watching their daughters fly off and have them next. Mm-hmm. And how do they feel about that? Do they feel, are they sad? Are they envious? Are they fearful? What is going on with those women? So that's kind of where it, where it came from.
2: That is mind-blowing. I, I love that perspective. I, I, I never really thought about it, though. But you said you did a lot of research on J.M. Barry. So one of the favorite things in research is actually finding the little thing that flips the story on its head. Can you tell us what you found out about Peter Pan and not always being a main character? And there's also his history and his sibling that died. Can you tell us about all of that
0: so that's what really did it for me, so I really didn't know much about j m Barry. I had seen the movies about him, and you know I, I knew kind of just the rough, very rough outline, and what I found was that you know he was born in Victorian England, which was not a great time to be a child. The mortality rate when he was born, I think was something like one in four, you know so one in four kids didn't grow up to see their fifth birthday. his mother was Margaret when Margaret was 8 years old her mother passed away so Margaret at 8 assumed all the responsibilities for the house she did the cooking the cleaning the caretaking and she continued to do that until she married she had 10 children Barry was i think number 8 or 9 and by the time he was born she had already lost two so you would think that she, that he would have been one of her favorite children he was the baby but the favorite child was his older brother David And David, when he was 14, was ice skating and he was, you know, the one that everybody had high hopes for. He was smart. He was, you know, kind. Um, He was really the family's golden child. And he was ice skating around his birthday and he tripped and he fell and he hit his head. Wow. It's never been really written about what he f- tripped over. There's one kind of scurrilous biography that suggests that he, what he tripped over was j m. Barry, which would make a lot of sense going forward because his mother, Margaret, um. at the loss of her son, took to her bed when you know when David fell, he died and never really came back and j m. Barry was six, and he was so desperate, and the family was so desperate to get a connection with Margaret that he dressed up in his dead brother's clothes, went and stood in her bedroom, put his hands in his pockets the way David used to stand and whistled the way David used to whistle. And his mother sat up in bed and said, is that you? And he said, no mom, it's just me.
2: Oh, (sighs) oh my God.
0: (sighs) And I thought, wow, you know, this, this man was so impacted by this that it, from, from my readings, consumed the rest of his life. I mean, he, there's a theory that he had stressed dwarfism. He never grew above, I think, five, three and a half. He never consummated his marriage. He just was always stuck in that guise of the boy who didn't
2: grow up. My God. Okay, so how did all of that, in your opinion, affect Peter Pan? But more importantly, how did that whole story then transfer into what you have written?
0: I went back and I really looked at Peter Pan and what he was looking for. And I think that Peter Pan, as Barry wrote him, has a huge hole in his heart. And he's always, always looking to fill it. And he always, always wants someone to choose him over everybody else. And no one ever does.
1: No. Oh my God. And you've you've mentioned before too that Peter Pan was a minor character before he was a major character.
0: Yeah, so Barry actually Barry had a fascinating life, you know, a, a really sad and tragic life. So Barry wound up getting married to an actress named Mary who was beautiful and had kind of taken care of him during illness. And he gave her, I think as a birthday or anniversary present, this enormous dog. And was he was walking the dog in the park one day and he met this tribe of boys. And there were, I think three at the time. And those were the boys that he based Peter Pan on. And he wound up really kind of infiltrating their life. He kind of took it over. And while he was, hanging out with them, he was entertaining them with stories. And one of those stories became a book called The Little White Swan. And looked at from today's point of view, The Little White Swan is incredibly creepy. It's It's
1: so creepy. Oh, have you read it?
0: It's so creepy. It's like, and I know a lot of times That's what I was trying to get you to talk about it. It is, like, if you wrote that story today- You would be locked up. They would come after you. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even quote from it when when I talk about Jay and Barry because it's so creepy that people- would think I was making it up, but it's about this man who is obsessed with this young boy and wants this young boy to love him more than he loves his mother, and all these things he does to get the boy away from his mother. He tells the boy, the narrator of the story tells the boy, I'm a father too, and he then says to the reader, wink, wink, no, I'm not, and then tells the boy, but my son died, and his name was David. It's just incredibly oh But at the center of the book is a story that the narrator tells the little boy. And it's about this baby in Kensington Gardens who plays with the fairies and never has to grow up and never has to listen to parents. And that was the germ of Peter Pan. And it became so successful that he wound up making it into a play and then into his own standalone and then into kind of what we know now as Peter Pan. I think it was originally called Peter Pan and Wendy. Mm -hmm. But the working title of that book originally was the boy who hated mothers.
1: Oh
0: my God. I did not know that.
1: So many
0: layers. So many layers. You wow. know, and he wound up, he wound up, um, the woman that he made the connection with, Sylvia, was this beautiful, beautiful woman. So Jay and Barry met the mother of the children that he had discovered in the park at a dinner party, and she was allegedly stuffing desserts into her purse. And he you know, gave her the side eye, and she's like, no, no, they're not for me, they're for my children. And so they started talking and realized that her children were the boys he had met in the park. And Sylvia was this beautiful, beautiful woman from a literary family. Her husband, Arthur, was just gorgeous and tall and handsome, and Barry kind of became Sylvia's sidekick, he would go over there for dinner. He would take the family on vacation. Um, And Arthur, I think, kind of felt that he was a bit of an interloper. But then Arthur got really, really sick and died of cancer. So Sylvia was left with five boys by that time. And two years later, later, Sylvia developed cancer and passed away. So the boys, I think the oldest was 15. George was 15, and they went down to, I think, five. The boys were orphaned. J.M. Barry stepped in and was transcribing Sylvia's will, essentially, that she was sending to her family. And somehow, where she had written, I would like the children to stay with Jenny, it became, I would like the children to stay with Jimmy, which was her pet name for J.M. Barry. So J.M. Barry wound up taking custody and becoming the guardian of all five children. And they really had really tragic lives. The oldest, George, grew up, enlisted in the army for World War I, died in the trenches at 21. John, the next oldest, suffered from crippling depression for most of his life. Peter committed suicide by throwing himself in front of a train. Michael died at 21 under suspicious circumstances. They think it might also have been suicide. He was swimming. He was a very good swimmer. It was a calm day, and he drowned. And Nico, the youngest, is the only one who grew up and really had a, you know, a relatively normal, happy life.
1: Wow! And then, and then, how it's just been, which is going to take us to fairy tales that I want to talk about next. But it it, it takes all this dark undergirding and and fies it into a cute, snap your fingers if you believe in fairies, right? Like it. it right. So I want to talk about fairy tales and how important they are. And I know you agree, my next book, The Secret Book of Laura Lee, is very much about fairy tales and about their impact on children and about how they can be used. Uh, Tolkien wrote an entire essay on why fairy tales are important. And one of my favorite lines in that essay is that they are often the consolation of a happy ending. So... Why do you think fairy
0: tales matter so much, even the
1: darker ones?
0: I think that they speak to our subconscious in a way that almost nothing else does. They're almost like primal memories. And they contain really basic, scary messages about the world. And they are a way to teach our children about the world.
2: So true. So true.
1: And and also there are a way, if we're willing to look at it, a way for us to see the darker parts of ourselves and not turn
0: away from them. I think that's true too. And, and the problem, I think, when they become, you know, prettified is that you lose those messages because so many fairy tales don't have a true happy ending for everyone. Right. And
1: I think that by prettifying them and taking away the true message, it gives a new message that isn't helpful, like sit around and wait for your prince. Exactly. So when we take away the truth of it, this is a whole podcast.
2: <laughs> I'm going to get off this. I'm like diving down, <laughs> this, podcast, yes. I'm <laughs> diving down
1: this rabbit hole of uh, fairy tales. I'm going to be on to mythology next. Okay, so Peter Pan first came out in book form in what? Was it 1911?
0: Uh, It was before that. I think it was like 1902 or 19... Well, no. So The the Little White Burrow came out, I think, in 1902 or 1904. Okay. Okay. And That was the first time it appeared, but I think the true Peter Pan, as we know, it, was 1911, yes.
1: 1911, okay. And it has never stopped, as, as evidenced by our conversation, it has never stopped being fascinating. It has entered our vernacular in the way we speak, lingo, like, do you believe in fairies or the boy who won't grow up, or the boy who hates mothers. So why has this story, kind of like Narnia, lasted in this way? Oh, I think there's
0: so many reasons. I think one is that it's such, at its core, it's such a true story. I mean, everybody wants to be loved. And it's written from, I think, such a wounded heart that it resonates with almost everyone. Mm. And it's beautiful. It's beautifully written, but also... The way he wrote it is more like a charcoal sketch than a full painting. There's so much space between the words for readers to imagine and build on. There are wonderful characters, but we don't know that much about them. I mean, what do we really know about Captain Hook? Where did he come from? What does he do? Uh, what was his name before he was Captain Hook? Um, that you can imagine these incredibly rich lives for all these characters and, and these incredible adventures. And that's what people do. They take these stories and they build on them and they make them their own. And Barry left you the room to do that.
1: Mm. I love great. that. Cause like Narnia, I think saying, you know, there's enough space in there to wonder what happened to Susan, to Peter. To like there's no wrap up. There's all kind of wiggle room. Although he did seven books and Peter Pan is just that one, there's still a thousand outgrowths. Oh, I love that. I never thought about it that way. Yeah,
2: so many possibilities of where the story can go. So, Liz, we all love Neil Gaiman, and I've heard him say that we write as gardener versus architect. Which of those would you be? And tell us a little bit about your process.
0: Oh, I'm a total gardener. I'm, I'm a gardener who goes out there and panics at how high the weeds <laughs> have grown and then starts watching everything back. <laughs> You know, I used to just write. I usually see the beginning and I see the end. And then I try and find stepping stones across the lake to get there. The last couple of years, I have become a little bit more structured with my first graft. So I will write my one or two sentences, which takes me a really long time. I spend a ridiculous amount of time thinking and thinking and thinking about a book before I start writing it. And then I spend a ridiculous amount of time thinking and thinking and thinking about the first chapter because I feel like if I have that and it's solid, I can go forward. But the last couple of years, I have actually started, I wouldn't say outlining, but doing just a really rough sketch of maybe 10 sentences of where things are supposed to go and trying to develop the story along those lines and sometimes you know it you you get halfway there and you realize that the next success sentences are just never going to happen for you and you need to give up and start again but it it definitely i think has made me a slightly faster writer which is good Mm -hmm. um but i also find that a lot of the stuff that i that i really enjoy the most is the stuff that
2: comes in the space between those sentences which i never expect so the ending stayed consistent through the whole process
0: Correct. The, 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 for Darlingo, the ending was always the same, but how I got there changed a lot. Gotcha. Um, my my daughter is actually a really good writer, and when I had her trapped in the car, I would say, "Well, what do you think about this?" And she'd be like, <laughs> "Yeah, no, no," you know, and give me some suggestions too, which was fun. Oh man, can we borrow her? Absolutely. I she's, she's looking for a job this summer, so that would be perfect.
1: We're we're just gonna all borrow her and say we're gonna give you our plots, and you can tell us where where it's coming undone.
0: That's She's awesome. very good at that. Oh, that's
1: awesome. So, any chance for another fairy tale inspired story? What's coming up next for you?
0: I'm working on one, but I feel very much like Elmer Fudd. You know, it's like I'm hunting rabbits and I'm trying to be really, really quiet. really, and really quiet and so. sneak up and catch it. But I just I think that I think that fairy tales for me are just so fascinating because they can be interpreted so many different ways by so many different people, but at their core they still have this true heart, this true
2: message.
1: Yeah,
2: like NIFS. Well, I look forward to whatever it is after this. So where can people find you? Like where are you at on social media?
0: I am on Instagram as Liz Michelski, author, and on Twitter, the same, and on Facebook as well. And I have a website, which is lizmichelski.com, that has all those links.
2: Well, it's wonderful! Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been like I don't know. I, I'm ready to go down a rabbit hole and just do research on everything you talked about because I've see, no-
1: even rabbit hole comes from a kind of a
2: fairy tale. It's true, exactly. Right. It comes
1: from Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, we, yeah, it enters our vernacular in ways that that no other kind of stories do.
2: They do, and and I know people can't see me, but I've like had my jaw down <laughs> through this whole thing. It's just full of fascinating facts and and thoughts, and and Liz is just endlessly fascinating. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you guys so much. I really enjoyed it, and I'm happy to talk story with you anytime.
2: I'm in, and thank you all for listening in. The Friends and Fiction Writers Block Podcast is now officially one year old and what a year it's been. We encourage you to go back and listen to episodes you may have missed or to re-listen to a favorite. Your support of the podcast is so appreciated and we cannot wait for you to hear what we have in store for you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writers Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode.
1: And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.
2: Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.